Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, it's Thursday the 29th of June. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk. You can find the show on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk or go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. You'll find all the links there along with my daily newsletter. On Facebook, the page is Peter Lewis Money Talk and on Twitter, you can find me at moneytalkr 3 Thank you for making this program one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, profits earned by China's industrial firms dropped 18.8% from a year earlier to 2.7 trillion yuan in the first five months of 2023, amid stalling economic recovery, weak demand and margin pressures. The decline followed a 20.6% fall in the prior period and a 4% drop in 2022, with profits shrinking in both state-owned firms and the private sector. The U.S. is considering new restrictions on exports of artificial intelligence chips to China, according to the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. Commerce Department could stop shipments of advanced chips made by NVIDIA and other companies to customers in China as early as July without first obtaining a license. The restrictions come amid concerns that China could use AI chips from NVIDIA and others for weapon development and hacking. The heads of the world's top central banks, including the US Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan and the Bank of England, warned at the ECB's Central Banking Conference in Sintra, Portugal, that more action is likely needed to bring inflation down towards targets of about 2%. They warned that tight labour markets are still pushing up wages and prices. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said although policy is restrictive, it may not be restrictive enough and it hasn't been restrictive for long enough. Hong Kong home prices have ended four consecutive months of rises with a 0.7% month-on-month drop in May. That follows a revised 0.4% rise in April. Compared to May last year, prices were down by almost 9%. And according to analysts, rate hikes and an exodus of more than 140,000 people from the workforce amid the pandemic curbs and Beijing's political crackdown of recent years have impacted the property market. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Louisa Fock, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. On Wall Street, US stocks were capped Wednesday by comments from the heads of the world's top central banks, including Jerome Powell, who warned of further interest rate hikes ahead. The Wall Street Journal reports that Washington was considering new restrictions on exports of artificial intelligence chips to China also weighed on sentiment. The S&P 500 was virtually unchanged at 4,377. The Dow fell 74 points on 0.2% to 33,853. The Nasdaq Composite rose a third of a percent to 13,592. Chip stocks fell following the Wall Street Journal report, with NVIDIA down 1.8%, having fallen as much as 3.3% at the low of the session. 
With just two trading days left in the first half of 2023, the S&P 500 is higher this year by 14% and the Nasdaq Composite is nearly 30% higher. Let's take a look at Asia. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 rebounded after three straight days of losses, gaining 2%. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index ended yesterday slightly stronger after climbing almost 2% on Tuesday. It rose 24 points, or 0.1%, to 19,172. For the quarter so far, the Hang Seng is down 6%. The tech index was 8% firmer on Wednesday, but is down 7% quarter to date. And for the penultimate day's trading in the first half, futures markets are pointing to a decline for the Hang Seng of about 100 points at the open. That's half a percent. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was unchanged at 3,189. It's on track for a quarterly loss of 2.6%. And the onshore yuan slipped by a third of a percent to a seven-month low of 7.2435 renminbi per US dollar. The offshore yuan traded at 7.25 and three quarters. The renminbi is 5.5% lower against the dollar this quarter. And that's put the currency on track for one of the worst quarterly falls on record since the country ended a soft peg to the US dollar in 2005. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Very good morning to you, Andrew, over in London this morning. So thank you for staying awake for us. Delighted. Thank you. And also with us here with me in the studio is Louisa Falk, who's China Equity Strategist at the Bank of Singapore. Morning to you, Louisa. Morning, Peter. Um, let's start with the markets. As you heard there, the Hang Seng slightly stronger yesterday, but a disappointing quarter so far. The Hang Seng's down 6% over the quarter. Uh, the tech index down 7% quarter to date. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite on track for a quarterly loss of 2.6%. And then the CSI 300 index of the largest listed stocks in Shanghai and Shenzhen has fared even worse, lo- losing 8.6% since its January high. Louisa, we regularly talk about uh, the uh, the China markets on on this program. I think when we sat down and talked at the beginning of the year, this wasn't really expected, was it? What what do you think has gone wrong? Um, I think looking ahead in the coming six months or the second half, I think two key drivers that the market will be closely watching for. Uh, first of all, definitely is the target easing measures. Uh, we do expect that, and I think the market has been building up expectations that there will be target easing measures to be launched uh, and a step up in terms of that. So far, we have seen uh, cuts in several of the benchmark lending rates and also at the new energy vehicle sectors. We saw the announcement of the tax uh, purchase tax exemption, but uh, that we we believe that we need more to restore consumer and investor confidence. Um, that that's first thing. Secondly, I think uh, the geopolitics. Uh, well, oh, well, it is definitely delighted to see Biden, uh, Blinken finally made a visit uh, to China this month. Um, so more positive senior officials engagements uh, is what the market uh, is looking ahead to. Um, and I think in July, uh, media has been reported that Yellen is highly likely to visit Beijing, despite um, you've mentioned that the executive order uh, is also likely uh, to be coming to completions very soon. Andrew, what's your prognosis of what's, uh, what's gone wrong for the Chinese markets? I don't think there's something going wrong. 
there are a number of uh, factors that have been at work very quietly in the background, but uh, uh, affecting primarily uh, expectational aspects, and that is people simply, uh, I wouldn't say refusing. You know, people say, I refuse to spend. People are spending as much as they think they owe to. And in China, of course, retail sales have been, uh, uh, let's say, at best weak. Then, of course, the most important factor for me, simply single biggest number that I've seen is the numbers for prices in the 70 big Chinese uh, uh, cities where the prices have been falling, not, mm-hmm. not increasing slowly, falling for nearly, I think now, 14 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that doesn't affect expectations, I don't know what it will. The fact that interest rates are very low simply reflects the fact that inflation in China is very low. Inflation in China is about 2%. So when the central bank cuts uh, interest rates by 10 basis points, sounds ridiculous, but as a percentage of the 200 basis points of inflation, it is not insignificant. So what has gone wrong is, uh, for me, is one which is impossible to measure, but... uh, uh, and it has to be anecdotal, and therefore I cannot possibly uh, live or die by that. And that is the three years of COVID had a huge resonance. It left literally the economy and the people uh, shell-shocked. And also the completely absur- abrupt okay, end of uh, the restrictions on COVID equally was, uh, was a blow. It should have been a good blow, and it was temporarily but then it left somehow uh, numbed reactions. I have a lot of theories uh, about that, and primarily they are medical, and therefore they are completely useless for <laughs> telling me what to buy and what to sell. But, okay, all, I can, all I'm going to tell you is, is this is not going to go away, this ailing aspect of the economy. In other words, I look at practically every single uh, number of the Chinese published uh, economic uh, numbers, and all of them are not bad, but they are definitely are not pointing to a 5% GDP growth this year. Well, Louisa, do, do you think COVID has changed the psychology of the consumer um, in China, and, and in particular, maybe their spending habits, which is one of the reasons why the government is really struggling to get consumer spending back up? Um, I think it's a combination of several factors. Um, Wealth effect from the declining home prices is definitely one uh, forces to play, uh, given that it's uh, it's not just China-specific. If any other cities that would have home prices coming down in this kind of magnitude, it would definitely have a negative wealth impact uh, on household spending. I think uh, the other things to point out is the unemployment rate. Uh, Despite the overall unemployment rate has improved, but uh, more importantly, those that uh, focus on the youth unemployment is um, is at record high. Um, that's definitely affect uh, the spending pattern as well. But um, I would say that situation is not that doom and gloom uh, because if you look at the excess household uh, savings that they have built up over the past year, um, there's actually uh, quite a significant of excess household savings from not buying, um, for instance, uh, uh, equities, properties, other wealth management mm-hmm. products. So I think the key is how to unleash this pool 
of um, household savings and to stimulate that. Um, so I think uh, the, the other, aside from the new energy vehicles, the other that we uh, have seen some signaling in terms of policy stimulus would be, in, for instance, like white goods. And uh, lastly, uh, probably real estates, um, like uh, what we have discussed just now. Um, to what extent that it would be uh, still an unknown, uh, but I think some of the um, possible, but maybe to certain extent could be quite powerful and not sure whether government would like to take the step is for instance, um, some of the home purchase restrictions are still in place in some of the cities. Um, that is like administrative measures uh, that could potentially uh, relatively more powerful um, uh, signal that the government is giving to the market. Andrew, a lot of investors uh, are sitting there waiting for fiscal stimulus from the government to go with the monetary stimulus that we've seen, those 10, 15 basis points rate cuts. It's been a bit like waiting for Godot, hasn't it? It doesn't seem to be coming at the moment. But why, why do you think um, the authorities are, are so reluctant to unleash more powerful fiscal stimulus? I think there are three factors here. Traditionally, okay, historically, uh, the Chinese policymakers are reluctant to use bluntly fiscal policy. And also, they're very reluctant to see the fiscal deficit to grow more than uh, 10%. Fiscal deficit is rather difficult to measure in China because you either measure the central government or if you include all the regional authorities, you're going to get very different figures. As it would be the case, if, for example, in the United States, not only you had the fiscal deficit of the Fed, but also you have the fiscal deficit of the 30 states. Okay, you'll get very different numbers. But be that as it may, a number around 10% is, is looked at with horror. The latest figures that I've seen on fiscal deficit, and I stand, I will definitely be delighted to stand corrected, was between 6 and 7%. Now, that's very low. In other words, the central government can spend a hell of a lot more for a very simple reason. The whole economy of China taken together has had and continues to have a current account surplus. Uh, that means that overall, the Chinese economy is a net lender to the world. It's not a lent borrower. It's, mm. not, it's not Argentina or it's not Russia. And that means that net lenders don't go bankrupt, mm. which means that the central government can spend can borrow a hell of a lot more without affecting either the price of the yuan or, for that matter, the sovereign ranking of China. That's my second point. The third point is, is they will not do this. They will not do this because they have seen what happens in the United States, which is a completely irrelevant example. They have seen what happens in, China, in, in Japan, which is a very relevant example, a huge fiscal deficit, and nothing has happened to the economy. Why? Because Japan also is a net lender to the world. Hello, this is very basically 101 uh, accounting. So we are back to very modest, slow monetary policy. And that is not going to, let's say, start the party anytime soon. Mm. So, Louisa, when you look at the markets, when you look at the valuations in the markets, um, the MSCI China index, it's trading at about 10 times forward earnings. That's quite a way below now the five-year average, which is over 12 times earnings. Do you get tempted when you start to look at the markets at these sort of levels and these sorts of valuations? 
Um, I think if I look at it, I'll probably look at it from two perspectives. From like what you've mentioned, from a historical perspective, it's definitely not demanding.、Um, but then I think this is also、uh, quite a lot of the risk、um, that has been baked in from a risk premium perspective. Going back to the topics that I've just mentioned, is the geopolitics、uh, because of the tensions. So that's why、um, the, to to help to re-rate as part of the risk premium to coming down are positive. Dialogues or engagement from senior officials of both U.S. and China is definitely something to watch out for.、Um, secondly, the other di- dimensions that I will look at is China. Nevertheless, is still part of the emerging market. So, from a valuation、uh, discount perspective,、um, is. Trading at quite a bit of discount,、um, like about fourteen percent, versus the MSCI emerging market.、Um, if I have a historical horizon, it's definitely one of the low. What it means is that that's. Already, quite a lot of pessimisms has been baked in、um, for China as well.、Um, so I think、uh, these are the two ways that I will look at it. Yes, valuation is undemanding, but I think the market is looking for. So where what it's going to take us from、uh, in the next six months, or even going into next year, that's as earnings growth. That's going back to the policy stimulus that we discussed. And secondly,、um, what would be the risk premium from a geopolitics tension perspective?、Yeah. And I suppose also we should look at the Chinese yuan, shouldn't we? Because that's an,、uh, an important factor for foreign investors. It's now down、um, at a seven-month low. It was trading below 7.24 um, in Shanghai um, yesterday. It's had a bad quarter. In fact, one of its worst quarters on record, down five and a half percent against the dollar this quarter. How big an impact is that having? Um, if, if you look at from a performance perspective, the、uh, Chinese yuan、uh, have a high correlation with offshore Chinese、um, equities market. So definitely, if we are going to see some kind of intervention like what we did last year,、uh, like coming up and and saying that you know、uh, the government will, will will stand here and defer at certain level, that that will that is also partly、uh, will address the issue from a、um, uh, government supportive measures perspective. Perspective, but、uh, that's one thing. But the other things to look at it is、um, some of the fundamental question is whether a depreciating yuan will help some of the export or, or things like this.、Um, my take is probably from two fro.、Uh, theoretically, yes, but、uh, practically, China、um, market share in terms of the major cat product categories、um, in the world market has already reaching to quite a large extent. Whether it's In top one, as or definitely within the top three,、um, how much more extra or incremental market share that it could gain simply from depreciating the currency is probably not as powerful as one would have imagined. So I do not think that、um, this is like something that the policymaker is looking into as a policy tools、uh, to help um, uh, export or, or trade from this perspective. Andrew, what are your thoughts on the the currency depreciation that we've been seeing? How much does that help the economy? I'm utterly indifferent for a very simple reason: the Chinese economy is not, was not, and it will never be export driven.、Uh, you know, every single piece of information that looks not just at exports. This is the obsession of the markets with exports. Exports are not important. Exports minus imports are very important. So the contribution of net. Exports 
to the GDP growth in the Chinese economy in the last five or six years was about 22%. Let's say 20%. Okay, the other 80% was not driven by exports. So why should I concentrate on net exports when there are other things much more important, such as domestic consumption and investment? Yes, it has depreciated. Yes, it will, if it can affect exports, it will be good. But the difference this is going to make on GDP growth is very, very little. So I, I like to see that the Chinese don't ride on a, on, a, on a war horse, that strong currency means a strong economy and a strong political force. It is just one more price. And then you have to ask, does, is this price going to make any difference to my GDP growth? And the answer is it's going to make very little difference. Where it does make a difference, I presume, is here in Hong Kong for those companies that have operations on the mainland. I'm thinking particularly of maybe some of the big conglomerates here in Hong Kong. Um, when they translate those yuan profits back into local currency, um, they're, they're going to suffer. So presumably that is, um, there is going to be an impact here because of the weak currency. Uh, Hong Kong is an altogether different case, right? And... Uh the other aspects here, and I'm coming to that, the other obsession with exports in Hong Kong is so ill-educated because exports of Hong Kong, 92% of exports of Hong Kong are re-exports. Mm. Hong Kong exports nothing. Okay, yeah. It exports things from China. Hello? Okay. To try to work out the value added of exports to Hong Kong's GDP growth, I challenge anybody. I tried it for a long time, and then I thought there were other things in life. Okay, <laughs> it is it is it it is not that straightforward. And people simply look at ex oh, exports went down by ninety percent. That means exports from China went down. Nothing to do with Hong Kong. <laughs> mm. Please, but, but, but okay. so so I I don't sorry. I I, I feel right, I feel sympathetic that people that receive their money in yen, they get fewer dollars. Well, that's life. What do you think, Louisa? Is this, uh, is this a, a negative for Hong Kong equities? I think Hong Kong in the middle of like both having a major impact from the U.S. monetary policy and also from China economic growth as well. Um, so I think one forces like, for instance, like this is, is not going to be the major force. And I think um, the other major uh, directions to look into in the second half is also uh, from the central bank's uh, rates policy. Um, we do not um, expect any rate cuts for the rest of the year. In fact, uh, we expect one more rate hike. Uh, next next month um but then uh rate cuts won't come until probably early next year but if you listen to the central bankers who were in uh, Centro in Portugal um, yesterday, they were all, um, to the last person, talking about um, more rate hikes this year. Um, so it does look like, doesn't it, that uh, the markets are still underestimating the, uh, the what's going to happen with interest rates. And I think part of the things to look at is also a highly data dependent as well. Um, given that after July FOMC meeting, uh, there will be a, a, a pause uh, uh, for about another one. So I think a uh, situation could still be very dynamic and also rate high expectations simply reflected by the uh, futures market that also can be, can swing back and forth quite dramatically on the back, on of, the this back of this data release.
Andrew, what did you make of what the central bankers were saying in Portugal yesterday? There was some, there was a slightly odd divergence between um, what Christine Lagarde, Andrew Bailey, and um, Jerome Powell were saying, which was basically we've got inflation, um, it's too much, and we want less of it. Whereas Japan, the Bank of Japan governor there was saying we've got inflation, and please can we have more of it? Um, slightly- I was going to tell you these central banks meetings illustrate. I'm sorry, I want to be very rude. The abject ignorance of the four biggest economies in the world, okay, United States, Europe, European Union, Japan, and China. China is just cutting interest rates. And they go around, they have the temerity to say that central banks are increasing interest rates. Well, one quarter of the central banks don't. And Mm. then the other one quarter, half, not only they are not cutting interest rates, okay, they want more inflation. So, you know, it is so ethnocentric that it drives me absolutely bananas. Okay, in other words, I, I want to say, yeah, like uh, I've forgotten how which was the famous, I think it was uh, Goldwyn Mayer that said famously, please include me out. Okay, in <laughs> other words, when, when, whenever I hear that central banks are saying interest rates are increasing, I say for half of the world, they ain't. Mm-hmm. Aren't you reading the newspapers, guys? Well, that's that's because I suppose if you look at Asia in particular and, and maybe the emerging markets, they've done quite well, haven't they, at getting inflation under control. So they're not under pressure to raise interest rates. It just seems to be in the West, in uh, Canada, in Switzerland, the UK, Europe, US. That's where rates yeah. are going up. Yeah, well, uh, yes. And now, you know, I've, I've been I've been in UK for, for a while, I can tell you inflation here you, you can definitely measure it but i'm not going to go around saying that the world is all inflation when in china inflation is stuck at about two percent i don't know for how many months now mm. you know it, it isn't i mean the this anthropom sorry centromorphic form of uh, it, it happens to us therefore it happens to the rest of the world uh, can be incredibly misleading and can also lead to to looking to not looking at places for good opportunities Mm. But Louisa, what do you think? Out here in Asia, um, the central banks do seem to have done a better job, don't they? It's uh, sort of keeping inflation under control. If you look around the region, Korea, Indonesia, um, uh, Malaysia, they're all, Singapore, they all sort of seem to be on top of inflation. They seem to be pausing their rate hikes. It's, it's in the West mainly that uh, we're, we're getting these surprises. And I think if you look at like major economies like what we have just discussed, probably UK is, at least from the headline numbers perspective, UK probably has a more uh, pressing need in terms of uh, raising interest rate to curb inflation. Um, in Asia, I think um, given that China, uh, if you look at like the PPI or CPI, is also um, rather than worrying about inflation, in fact, uh, investors are concerning whether it w- we will actually slide into deflation. So preventing it from uh, getting into that stage is probably much more uh, critical from this perspective. Andrew, let me ask you about some of the the geopolitical stuff. We had um, Premier Li Chang talking about de-risking or attacking the Western concept uh, of de-risking, saying that basically it's a false uh, proposition. He was also trying to basically say that companies should decide themselves on the risks of investing in China. It shouldn't be down to um, governments. I doubt somehow that uh, the the US government is going to listen to that. But nevertheless, China does seem to be pushing back, doesn't it, on this uh, concept of de-risking. Of course, of course, they are pushing back because all of it is directed to China against China. Nobody says mm. de-risk 
from, from the United States or from Europe. They say there is from China. So, you know, I'm not being sarcastic or, or, or cynical here. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a gun pointed at China, and China doesn't like guns pointed at them. That's, that's perfectly normal. Now, if you are saying, okay, should individual companies decide on that, Ah, then that changes altogether. And then you have two parts. You have United States with a list as long as my arm of uh, uh, country places, companies that you cannot trade with or goods you cannot export. And that is, uh, let's say, a weaponization of the trade policy. And then on the other hand, you have uh, companies that either ignore it or simply try to avoid it or evade them. So United States doesn't have it all the time all its way. It is, it is just, uh, just not true. But the fact that it plays politics with economics, really? Oh, what a bad boy or bad girl it is. <laughs> oh, come on. But they're all doing it, this aren't so they? They're all doing so it. so hypocritical. Okay. I mean, I, I find it ironic that when China says companies should be allowed to decide on the risks separate from their governments, that's, of course, not what China would allow companies to do on the mainland. Thank you. I didn't want to say that would have been a little bit politically incorrect, but you are absolutely right. Yes, but it is it is okay. It is the same. You know, I look at it at the same way when when people say that China is arming. I say so is United States. So is India. Hello. Okay. It's not just uh, everybody else does that, and therefore China should not be doing this. You are absolutely right. The world is uh, is a very strange place. I would say the world is a very hypocritical place. Mm. Certainly is. Louisa, I mean, this is going to get worse, though, isn't it? By the sounds of it, the Biden administration, according to the Wall Street Journal, talking about even more restrictions on chip exports. Uh, It didn't specifically mention China, but clearly China is the country that's in mind because it fears, uh, you know, what some of these high, um, high powered chips from companies like NVIDIA are going to do. We're going to have to um, brace ourselves for more export restrictions, aren't we? And and more sanctions and tariffs uh, in the second half of the year. Um, that's why at the opening or the of the discussions we we mentioned about geopolitics and obviously um, dialogues between the officials. Like for instance, uh, we're not going to say that Yellen's visit will turn everything around. This is not the expectation, and this is not going to be the case. But at least uh, ongoing discussions is is a way that investor would like to see. Um, in terms of these uh, sanctions, I, I do believe that over the past couple of years we've seen it coming. Uh, and to different sectors, ranging from, um, for instance, um, uh, telco equipments or, or, or energy play. So I think what the market really looking for is clarity. Uh, in in a nutshell, what what is included, what is the boundary, what can be done, what can not be. So I do believe that corporates can can address um, the government issues and and maybe work around with it. For instance, uh, they will know to what certain extent at what technology level does this allow and what is not allowed. Wow. I think clarity is the important thing here. Andrew, final thoughts from you there on, on, the, on the geopolitical issues and, the, and this whole issue of um, de-risking. It does look like, if, you're, if the Wall Street Journal is right, anyway, we're going to see even more restrictions in the second half of this year on, on exports to, um, to China. Is this something that investors are going to have to brace for? Yes, very much so. And in fact, if one wants to play it indirectly, uh, my reasoning is quite convoluted. Look, uh, the restrictions of exports to China are primarily, if not exclusively, are related to microchips that can be used for defense. Full stop. Mm. 
you know, uh, the, the United States is not interested in uh, uh, sound chips for Barbie dolls that say, hello, Ken, hello, Ken. <laughs> they are really not including this at all. Okay, they're interested only in things that go bam and kill people. Well, now, right now, the world is arming massively. And again, I'm sorry, I've been, I've been saying this to your program a lot of, uh, a lot of times. Again, okay, the place to look at, okay, if you are really meaning or worried about uh, restrictions and inputs is go and invest in defense companies. They are the ones that are going to benefit out of all this. Okay, because the restrictions on chips is nothing else but a mirror image, a kind of yin and yang of what is going on now in India, what's going on now most definitely in the United States, most definitely in China, most definitely in Japan, in Australia. Okay, buying more guns right across the board. Okay, well, thank you for your thoughts there. You heard Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, Louisa Fock, who is China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei. Very good morning to you, Ross. Good morning. Um, a lot of talk about de-risking at the moment, isn't there, both from the Chinese side and the US side. At the summer Davos, Premier Li Chang was talking about de-risking being a false proposition. But now we have this Wall Street Journal report uh, that the US is considering more of it and banning even more um, chip exports. Where on earth is this all going to lead to? It looks like they'll continue to be these kinds of restrictions. Uh, you know, industry always moves ahead of government in, in most countries, and especially in the United States. And uh, the, the previous round of restrictions were met by industry saying, OK, well, we'll of course comply, but we have some other chips that are not as as fancy and uh, we'll still sell those to to China. And they weren't on the initial list of restricted chips. And there you go. Uh, the, the most prominent company in the, the AI uh, chip space, uh, NVIDIA, uh, the, their leadership has been pretty outspoken about uh, missed opportunities in China if these restrictions uh, continue to be imposed. Uh, I'm not going to go so far as to say that their outspokenness was a factor in, in the potential uh, upcoming round of additional restrictions on chips that were not as powerful as, as in the uh, round last year. Uh, but uh, it, it certainly, uh, I think, has caught people's attention that uh, NVIDIA still gets a lot of business from China, that they did have alternatives uh, that were not within uh, earlier uh, scope uh, of restrictions. And uh, the, the government is catching up. Uh, what will happen after that? NVIDIA will say, well, we still have another chip uh, that's not restricted. Uh, you know, that could be a possibility. But very interesting. Uh, company officials were at a conference uh, Wednesday, U.S. time, and they, they, they were pretty emphatic that this won't uh, have an effect on their earnings in the short term, but it might in the medium or long term. Who steps into the gap if uh, if there's more bans on U.S. Uh, chip companies exporting their high technology to China? Does this benefit, for example, maybe South Korea? Do companies like Hynix and uh, Samsung, do they set, step into the fray and, and take up the slack here? Well, there's a lot of speculation about whether or not the U.S. could bring South Korea along. Uh, you have to keep in mind, you know, different different uh, chips, different processes, different companies excel at one or the other. You know, it turns out that for AI, NVIDIA really is an industry leader. Uh, but uh, South Korea, 
earlier in this round of, of tax restrictions had been sending signals that they were reluctant uh, to, to play along with the U.S. and they were reluctant to join uh, Chip 4 alliance with the U.S. and, and Taiwan and Japan. But uh, it's pretty clear in the last few months when it comes to security issues, including cooperation with not just the United States, but Japan as well, that uh, uh, President President Yoon is when he's got to make a decision, when he's got to pick a side. For now, he does seem to be picking the side of the U.S. So mm. uh, I, I wouldn't assume that South Korea won't go along. Uh, so that's definitely something to watch. But again, the, for security purposes, it seems uh, that at least for now uh, he's sticking with the U.S. But it seems like this is going to expand. It's not just going to be chip exports. There's talk about an investment ban as well now on um, on, on U.S. companies investing in certain sectors um, in China. This just seems to be escalating very rapidly. Yeah, the investment ban is something that's been talked about for, for a while. Uh, the U.S. Uh, does not have, uh, for the most part, uh, does not have an outbound investment uh, a monitoring mechanism. It does have the inbound one, which has been invoked against Chinese investments more frequently recently. Uh, but uh, we have examples like Micron just recently uh, announcing that they were going <laughs> to uh, increase their investments in China. Now, granted, that the, the, that might be for older process. And it's not something that's restricted by the U.S. at the moment. Uh, but again, it must have caught people's attention in, in, in decision-making circles in Washington, a big prominent U.S. tech company that had recently ran into trouble with Chinese regulators. is still saying that we want to be here. And then, of course, all the news we see from, from Tesla, which you know, it's always about tech, ultimately. It's uh, mm. batteries and things of that nature to power the vehicles. Uh, so, yeah, it's coming. There is going to be <laughs> an outbound. Uh, investment review mechanism. And of course, they'll say it's not targeted at China, it's targeted at uh, unfriendly countries, countries that are a threat to the United States. And do you think Janet Yellen can sort this out? Can she find a way through this when she visits um, China or supposedly visits China at the beginning of July? Because among the administration officials, she's probably been the one who's been more most outspoken, hasn't she, about um, the impact of these um, bans and, and these sanctions and the damage they're doing to American companies as well. So is, is she the one who can maybe try and sort through this? Well, she doesn't have the sole decision-making authority over these things. Of course, ultimately, it's up to the president, uh, but a lot of this is driven by uh, the security side. Uh, she's also not the person to talk much about the tech industry. She, she's there to talk about the state of global finances, uh, rescheduling debt for, for uh, global South countries that are having trouble paying their debts and the food security and other other issues. Uh, she, she's probably there to champion the U.S. financial industry, which isn't really affected by some of these uh, restrictions if you know, they want to expand their wealth management services in China. Uh, it'll probably just be a victory for her if, if she doesn't get criticized in the U.S. about the seating arrangements and things like that. Mm, but I, I just get a feeling as we move up to the election, um, this is just going to get more and more, more um uh, tense because if you look at President Biden, I mean, what he was speaking in Chicago yesterday, he's put his name now to his economic policies, calling it Bidenomics, um, which is basically anti uh, globalization, isn't it? He was saying globalization has hollowed out um, American industries, left American workers um, worse off. Um, it looks like we're going to see more of this. 
It sounds like uh, you're quoting Donald Trump in 2016, and it helped him mm. uh, really uh, do very well with voters, uh, blue-collar union voters who had previously voted for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012. Uh, Biden is just – he's basically repeating some of his policies. You know, to be fair to him, uh, he's, he's championed you know, some reshoring, and of course there was the, the CHIPS Act and other initiatives to increase manufacturing capacity in the United States. So he could claim credit for that. He's, he's certainly not sounding like the Bidens, uh, who was a senator for decades and kind of championed the whole uh, global village concept, whether for trade or other things. Uh, but that's what the political environment is. And you've got to stay ahead of the many Republicans who are going to try and outdo each other in the primary. And that field of candidates keeps growing. Uh, and they're going to try and uh, try to outdo each other on these issues and be the, the person who's more anti-globalization than they're kind of, you know, surprisingly, even DeSantis has been criticized over some statements he made recently that seemed to indicate he wasn't a big fan of, of some of these trade restrictions and tariffs. Mm, but if you look at, I suppose, the main feature of Bidenomics, as he now likes to call it, or certainly his economic policy since he came um, to power, is it's a much more interventionist um, type of economics, isn't it? He believes very strongly that the government should be intervening, should be promoting certain sectors, should be providing subsidies. Um, this is a very interventionist type of policy, industrial policy. That's right, but uh, not a surprise coming from a Democrat. And uh, also should keep in mind that the way he likes to portray it is that that really these things that he, he's doing, this intervention, it's really helping the middle class blue collar uh, workers as well, factory workers. Uh, so it, it, it's it's it, there's a specific purpose here, uh, which is to help working class Americans do better and have good, solid jobs for the future. Also, should keep in mind that when it comes to subsidies and picking champions, as evidenced by the CHIPS Act and other initiatives, uh, there's a lot of support for, for that now from Republicans, uh, both in, in the House as well as the Senate, maybe a bit stronger in the Senate. Uh, but but it, it, again, you know, that, that is not uh, a view we traditionally associated with American Republican politicians, that the government gets to pick champions and subsidize industry. Uh, but that's certainly where the direction that we're going. Let me finally ask you about um, New Zealand. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins is now in China uh, for a six-day um, visit. First of all, how important is New Zealand to, uh, to, to China? He got to meet with President Xi Jinping and President Li Chang. Um, does China see New Zealand as an important partner? Uh, for They do for a variety of reasons. One, you know, New Zealand having a somewhat, even though it's part of the five eyes and normally considered one of the Western allies, uh, it, it's always had a bit of a, a independent voice when it comes to foreign and security policy issues, especially when there's a left of center labor government in power, as there is at the moment. Uh, most famously, they're, they're dust up with the United States over nuclear uh, armed uh, uh, vessels uh, plying the waters nearby New Zealand going back to the 80s. Uh, so, you know, for China, they, they love this, right? They love a country that that's, you know, will kind of say like, well, yeah, well, when we have issues with China, we'll talk about them, but but doesn't issue the kinds of statements on, on, the, on the, the usual issues, Hong Kong, uh, human rights, et cetera, uh, that we'll see from the United States or increasingly from some of the other Western countries. So for China, it's great. It's kind of like a divide and conquer. But uh, from a more practical perspective beyond the rhetoric, you know, it's, it's just good to have a, a country that wants to trade for, with you from, from a Chinese perspective perspective. And, and New Zealand has things that China needs, you know, most obviously dairy, uh, the education 
industry remains open to to Chinese students, uh, unlike other countries that are increasingly imposing restrictions. Uh, so, yeah, again, it's it's great to have a New Zealand option uh, among Western countries. And, and presumably New Zealand, what it wants is more trade deals, doesn't it? Because it's very dependent upon the Chinese economy. Well, the prime minister made that very clear. He brought a big delegation with him. In fact, the delegation was so big, they even uh, made the news that they had to have a backup plane in Manila because they can't rely on their own government aircraft. And because he had this large, maybe it was just him and his aides, their backup plan could have been to fly commercial. Uh, But I I could see where if they can't rely on the plane, it would have been hugely embarrassing if such a large delegation was stuck uh, in Beijing waiting for the aircraft to be uh, repaired. Uh, but yeah, uh, but but to keep in mind that in the last six months, as we sort of got to the end of COVID, and then when China did eliminate the COVID restrictions, there's been Germany, there's been France, there's been New Zealand, there's been some smaller countries uh, that don't get as much attention. But the, you know, the head of government bringing the business leaders to China, uh, New Zealand is certainly not unique in that regard. Okay, well, Russell, it was good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, who's Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk.